familiar with Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events? Anyone? I see a few hands. Okay, good, good. So some of you will know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, I'll have to explain this, but that's okay. I was prepared to do that anyway. This is a, a series of 13 novels, ostensibly for children, but it appeals to adult readers also, and it was adapted into a movie starring Jim Carrey back in 2004. Uh, more recently, it's a series on Netflix that just released uh, its third and final season this past week. Abby and I have been watching that, and I bring it up because when I was watching it this week, I was struck by the repeated emphasis on the importance of words. Words that can have the same meaning can often lead to unintended and unfortunate consequences. There's a good example toward the beginning of the story when the three protagonists, orphan children, the Baudelaire's, are placed under the guardianship after the death of their parents. They're placed under the guardianship of the villain of the story, a fellow named Count Olaf, because of the misconstrual of the phrase closest living relative. He was the fellow who lived closest to them, you see, who was related, and that's why they put him with them. Uh, the narrator of the story also frequently breaks in to explain particular words, and often these are humorous asides, but they're in exacting detail. And in each and every one of these stories, when the Baudelaire children find themselves in some sort of difficulty, the solution, the key to their survival, is always found in a library of all places. Whether they're reading about law or nature or grammar or history, their survival hinges on the importance of words. You see, the point is, words are powerful things. And that's what drives this study we're about to begin here on the important words in Scripture, examining a different word every week, and that's what makes this story so significant. We can all recognize the power of words in our own life, can't we? The power of the words that we use, the power of the words that have been spoken to us. Think about your own experience. What's the most important word or words that you have heard? I love you. I now pronounce you husband and wife. Tristan and Brooks heard some pretty important words today. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We could probably all pinpoint particular examples in our own lives of words that were extremely powerful and influential for us. The words we use have power. The Proverbs writer says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 18, verse 21. And this is a truth that Scripture endeavors to impress upon us in innumerable ways. Jesus warns us that we will be held accountable for our words. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. 
He says in the Sermon on the Mount that our word should be so reliable that oaths are unnecessary. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Matthew 5.37 The epistles are replete with warnings about the dangers of how we use our words. So for example, Paul says, Ephesians 4 verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And Peter warns in a similar way in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, that false teachers will attempt to exploit you with false words. And so because of this, we're warned to control our words. James writes about this at great length. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James 1.26. Or at, at greater length, in James chapter 3, this is a passage most of us probably remember. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 3 here. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, straining the whole, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. We could continue on in this vein, but the point I hope we've impressed by now is that our words have great power. To again quote from Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrust but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Because our words are so powerful, we should be very intentional in how we use them. And we need to be very careful that we understand what they mean. When we talk about the power of words, the same thing is true. In fact, it's even more true when we talk about the word of God. There's a, a hymn that expresses this really clearly, and it's one that I'd heard before and kind of forgotten about, but uh, Marsha Rader actually loaned me a CD that has this hymn on it. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's called Ancient Words. Holy words long preserved for our walk in this world, they resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Words of life, words of hope, Give us strength, help us cope. In this world, where'er we roam, ancient words will guide us home. 
Well, when we think of those ancient words and when we think of God's word, we, we primarily think of the written word, the way that that hymn is describing. And indeed, the word of God is a key concept in Scripture. It's a key in the Old Testament. We see this phrase appearing over and over again. Thus says the Lord. We're so familiar with that, that's idiomatic, right? I, we need to thus saith the Lord for this or that, everything that we do. That appears literally hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And when that's used, those messengers who use it are claiming to be spokespersons for God. The words that they use are the very words of God. They're speaking on his behalf. And that means to reject what they say is to reject the words of God. And even when we don't find that phrase, a prophet is also is often spoken of, it's said that God speaks through him. So that again, he's the, the channel, the intermediary for the word of God. So in other words, in the Old Testament, we have the written record of God's own words. We find that emphasis repeated in the New Testament. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter doesn't deny human personality. Men still produce these writings, but ultimately, the words weren't their own. They came from God. He was the source of them. The New Testament speaks in numerous places in this way. You remember Jesus, when he's combating the devil, he's being tempted, he drives him away, not only with Scripture, but as he says, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Paul claimed that his preaching was not his own words, but they were the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And maybe the clearest example of this sort of thing in Hebrews, in back-to-back chapters, in Hebrews chapter 3 and then in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer quotes from the exact same passage in the Psalms. And in one place he says that David said it. And in the other place he says the Holy Spirit said it. So in other words, what David said in the Psalms was what the Spirit said. This is God's word. His ancient words revealed to us can pierce our hearts they reveal god to us they make him known they make his will known to us closely related to that idea of god's will being revealed in his word we also find the idea in scripture of the dynamic power of God's word. And by that I mean God's word is active and it's powerful in and of itself. It was the power at work in creation. The psalmist says, the 33rd Psalm verse 6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and all their host by the breath of his mouth. Of course, we know that everything was created by the word of the Lord because that's just a summary really of what we read in Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? What do we find over and over there? God said, let there be light. God said this. God said that. That's how creation comes to be. But God's word is not only the power in initial creation. God actually speaks 
through nature. He continues to speak. The 29th Psalm says that the voice of the Lord is powerful and full of majesty. And we could read that entire psalm if we had time, but I encourage you to check it out. He says there, among other things, that God speaks in the roll of the thunder. He speaks in breaking the cedars. He speaks in shaking the wilderness. In the 147th psalm, the psalmist says that God's word goes out and it brings the snow. And then his word goes out again and it melts the snow. God's word is active. It's dynamic in creation. It's active in nature. And it's just a short step from that to see that God's word is actually what's active in history. This is where we have the most uh, thorough statement of the dynamic power of God's word, the most profound statement. Isaiah chapter 55, beginning in verse 10. Isaiah says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is active. It's powerful. It's dynamic. It accomplishes his purpose. And when we talk about that active and powerful and purposeful word of God, the ultimate of all words is, of course, Jesus. And that takes us to our text that was read a few moments ago. It's familiar to most of us here tonight. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him or through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. That Greek term that's translated as word here and in most English translations is the Greek word logos. This is a notoriously difficult term to translate because no one English equivalent really captures the full force of the term. Word isn't an incorrect translation. It's just, it's just incomplete. It doesn't really capture all the nuances of the term. And so in some English translations, you'll find that people have tried to translate it as, as logic, as act, as deed. And try to explain what we mean by that. In Greek philosophy... The Logos was the organizing principle of the entire universe. It was reason. It was logic. It was that which brought order to chaos. Everything was organized around the Logos, the, the reason. The Stoic philosophers later built on that idea, and they said that the Logos is sort of the divine spark in everything, the world soul, if you want to call it that. And at any rate, though it was developed in different ways by different schools of thought, the whole idea is that this is the, the abstract, the impersonal order of the world. Well, that sounds a lot like what we read in the Old Testament about 
the dynamic and creative word of God, doesn't it? Creates. It brings order. The key difference is that for the Greeks, this logos, this word, was impersonal. It was abstract. But in Jewish thought, it's personal. The source is the one true God. He speaks. It reveals him. It's his word. That's how we come to know him. He's the one who's responsible for this order, for this reason in the world. Now, I recognize we're swimming in pretty deep waters here, okay, when I talk about this. And it would take a lot more than just a 90-second overview to get us to really understand that. And even if we tried to talk about this more, I don't think I'm the most qualified to uh, give a presentation on uh, Greek philosophy and the logo. But my whole point in bringing all of that up is that this thinking is in the background of what John says here in John chapter 1. In particular, it's this Jewish idea of God's dynamic, God's creative word, not only in the passages that we read, but in some other passages, like in Proverbs or like in Job chapter 28, where we see God's wisdom personified. But he's casting it in these terms that are familiar to Greeks because John's writing to a worldwide audience. He's trying to meet everyone on their level here in terms they can understand. And the point is to say that Christ is the incarnate Logos is to say that he is the word that reveals God to humanity. John 1, 15, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's to say like that word in the Old Testament that he is the agent of creation. We already read that. John 1 verse 3. By him all things were made. Without him was not anything made that was made. It's to say that in him, he is that reason, that logic and coherence of the universe. The way Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1. In him all things hold together. Jesus is the reason Jesus is the revelation of God to humanity he's the reason for our existence to begin with without him we'd have nothing we'd be nothing and when we talk about this study of words he's the foundation of this study because without the word all of these other words would be insignificant so with all of that said why should we be interested in this study? Why should we be excited about it? I hope you're excited about this study. I know several people are. You've spoken to me about how you uh, enjoy the idea of these books. First of all, as we've hopefully clearly seen tonight, words are powerful. And because words are so powerful, that means we need to have a clear understanding of words and what they mean. So I want to encourage all of us to take the challenge to dig deep and study this word that we're going to be looking at every week throughout this coming year, trying to gain an appreciation of the importance and the significance of all of these words. We'll gain knowledge of some of these terms that we just take for granted. You know, there are a lot of words, if you look through the table of contents, things that we sort of talk about in a church setting, repentance, justification, 
atonement, and we all sort of nod our heads piously along like we understand what these mean, but we really don't go into depth on them a lot. And so we need to be sure that we understand what these terms do mean and that we're all on the same page. If we understand those specific words better, then hopefully that should enhance our appreciation of the word in general because we'll see how it all fits together better. And if we really buy into this, well, then spiritual growth is inevitable because the problem with, with so much religion, even uh, many professing Christians today, is we're led around by our hearts. Well, I think this. I feel this. We're not led by how God reveals himself. Our head should lead our hearts, not the other way around. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, as the psalmist puts it. But even with all that said, the second thing is if we really buy in and dig deep on this study, it will enrich our hearts spiritually. Jesus tells us how to find genuine treasure. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. If our hearts are touched by this study, Jesus will be magnified. We talked about our purpose today to glorify God. Well, if we dig into this study, we'll glorify God. We'll be spurred on to deeper study of Scripture. And that will lead to more conscientious, more holy living. My hope and my prayer is that God will bless us as we embark on this study of the words in his word and that all of these will ultimately point the way to the word with the goal that those in the world world can see the word in every sense of the word living within us now maybe you're here tonight and you haven't been living in accordance with god's word Maybe you need to make some changes this evening in a public way. If that's the case, if you have any need at all, we invite you to respond to the Lord's invitation now while we stand and while we sing.